Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So we left off talking about um, the decline of Rome uh, under Constantine, the internal strife, and the gradual, uh, I guess, decline would be one way to say it, into the Middle Ages. Um, although, for, you have to remember, for most of the people, that lived at this time, life in the Middle Ages was not significantly different from life under the Roman Empire. You know, most people are farmers. They're not doing much different in the Middle Ages, um, except it's a little colder and rain is less regular, so maybe they have a little bit tougher life, but not necessarily because of the major collapse of the Roman Empire. Perhaps they get less trade goods. We'll talk about all that today and tomorrow. Okay. Roman agriculture is a product of the Middle Eastern agriculture that we met, talking about Mesopotamia and uh, the origins of agriculture. So this map, uh, the red, shows the earlier agriculture, orange later, yellow later, and light yellow even latest. Um, and you can see that it is a general progression out of the Middle East through Turkey and the Balkans, Greece, um, and then up into Europe, and it doesn't get into the northern climates until actually pretty recently. Um, so, you know, my ancestors come from way up here, so they didn't start farming until 4,000 years ago, or I guess 6,000 years ago. Uh, so that's, you know, not too long in the evolutionary history, whereas these people here, uh, my wife's family, her ancestors go back, what, 11,000 years. So big difference. Um, Anyway, so Rome, right in here, is definitely in the Middle Eastern realm of uh, agriculture. So we're talking wheat, we're talking sheep, cows, pigs, uh, barley, right? Really what uh, many of us here in the United States um, eat because uh, a lot of the early settlers, a lot of the early European settlers had that still, uh, that same type of food. Uh, so it's all diffused from the Middle East, and diffusion is not always appropriate to explain the transfer of technology, but in this case, it's absolutely perfectly fine. They added a few things, uh, olives and grapes, which were not really <laughs> a big part of uh, Middle Eastern agriculture, but obviously olives to make olive oil and grapes to make wine were a big deal for the Romans and others in the Middle East. Um, and the cool thing about the Romans is we have a lot of written records, so we can uh, augment what we know archaeologically by actually reading things like cookbooks, which are pretty neat. Um, they also have like handbooks of agriculture, which is awesome. They say like, here's what you should do if you're having this problem. Here's the proper way to do X, Y, and Z, which is super useful for us because as archaeologists, usually we don't get to see exactly what sorts of methods they're using. We only get to see the results, um, and that's only sometimes. So we know that they use things like the plow and the scythe to increase their uh, effectiveness. 
So when agriculture comes to a new location, it usually benefits from a lot of underlying untapped fertility because wild ecosystems, unless they're deserts or otherwise um, non-vegetated locations, um, they generally sequester and hold a lot of good organic uh, rich soil. And this is why it's so attractive for uh, initial farmers who come and they clear off the forest or, or the prairie or whatever and then plant their crops. And they do really well for a little while. Um, and by a little while, I mean it could be generations, right? A good thick topsoil, uh, good dense um, soil nutrition or um, nutrients. But over time, uh, we see a big degrading of the agricultural potential of this area. Um, some of it comes from you know, the plants using that, um, a lot of times, nitrogen and other things, um, and not being put back in the soil. But also, this is a map of deforestation. So we see, what, 1,000 BCE? Or, yeah, right, so we see minor deforestation around the Alps and the Italian peninsula and some of Europe where there's Germanic tribes and Celtic tribes, right? Um, and also into the Middle East where people have been living in cities a lot longer. You can see pretty massive deforestation. Uh, here we're advancing into Roman times and we're seeing significant, uh, significantly more deforestation. And by the end of the Roman period, we see extreme deforestation, especially in areas that are somewhat near enough to supply Rome with wood, because wood was a major export or import to Rome and export from the provinces. And that continues through the Middle Ages. So the downside of this is not just, oh, there's less trees, but trees protect topsoil from eroding away in heavy downpours. Um, usually you can, there's a, a positive correlation I don't mean positive in the humanity sense, but positive in that the more deforestation you have, the more erosion you have. Um, so that can be something we see. And of course, we know this through pollen cores, right? We can look at lakes across Europe and see the change in what types of plants are there. And we can see the great reduction of forests. In Europe, there's only a very few places that have old growth forest um, still, still existent. Um, because it's all been cleared. People have been there for so long. Okay. Yeah, by 2000, even by 200 BCE, Rome is heavily, heavily um, uh, eroded. Okay. Um, we also see Rome importing food from the provinces. This is really unusual in the ancient world. Today, most of us get our meals and our food from far away, which is how our system is set up. But in the ancient world, that was extremely rare. Nobody imported, except for Romans, nobody imported food. You grew food locally. You imported things like fancy jewelry or pottery or you know, gold or whatever. You didn't import food. That's just nonsense. Rome did because Rome was super powerful. They had a really intense trading network. And they're also one of the later organization, or, uh, organizations, uh, societies we're talking about. But they imported, uh, what was it, 200,000 tons of wheat every year just to feed Rome. Uh, that is dangerous if you're not 100% sure of your uh, transportation network. But I'll talk about trade uh, in a little bit. <laughs> we can um, think about 90% uh, of the population being farmers. 
So uh, very different from today. Uh, I don't know what the actual percentage anymore is, but it's not 90% uh, anymore. It hasn't been since the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we haven't had 90% of people farming in, um, in our society. Uh, the total population of the Roman Empire was 50 to 60 um, million people. So uh, put that in perspective, that's a little smaller than the current country of Germany, which I think is like 90. Um, so it's a pretty large empire, really, for ancient standards. And uh, again, 90% of those people were farmers. Um, yeah, grain was coming in really from all over, from Spain and France, called Gaul, then all the way over to e Egypt um, and other places were sending grain in. Uh, Greece was supplying them with things like uh, wine and, and uh, olive oil. Agriculture didn't exist in a secular vacuum. Uh, there was a god, Ceres, uh, of agriculture. So where we get the term cereal, it's related to the term cereal. Uh, Ceres was the god of uh, agriculture, and they had festivals, excuse me, uh, harvest festivals and uh, fertility festivals related to Ceres in order to ensure that they would have good crops. They had other minor deities that would uh, keep mice away or keep uh, the grain from going bad and things like that, right? So there was a lot of rit religious ritual. Um, one interesting thing, and I'll talk more about religious ritual in a week and a half, um, is that you know there are things in, in nature and in the world that we can't really control. And uh, a lot of times you see religious um, practices spring up to help uh, improve our luck, right? Uh, and it doesn't have to necessarily be religious. You can see uh, baseball players or other sport people who um, will wear the same underwear for all of playoffs or will always, you know, batters are famous for this. They always, you know, uh, play with their batting gloves or tap their boots or, or their, uh, their cleats or whatever. Um, and touch their hat the same way as they step into the box. Um, right? These are all uh, rituals that uh, help us feel like we have some control over the uncontrollable. Um, and Romans were no different, especially with agriculture, as it was so fundamental to uh, survival. Um, depending on who you were, your diet was uh, pretty different. Uh, a rich person ate... Let's see what do I have next. Yeah, um, a rich person would eat things like uh, bread, like white bread, not, not quite white, but uh, pretty white bread, um, olives, fruits, cheeses. There are plenty of cheeses at this time. Nuts, eggs, vegetables, and a whole bunch more of fancy things like seafood, imported foods from all over the world. Sometimes they would bring in animals just to kill them, to eat them from Africa or other places. Um, Food for the rich was a literal type of conspicuous consumption. It would be, they would host parties like this, where the point was to bowl your guests over with the amount of food you could provide them. And stories are told by historians and others at the time uh, of such lavish feasts that between, you know, perhaps the seventh and the eighth course, everybody would excuse themselves to go vomit. Uh, so that they could eat more, uh, you know, clear out a little space uh, for the next six courses or whatever. Um, now, to be fair, some of these accounts might be exaggerated and they might be written by people who didn't really like or maybe they weren't invited. And so they're trying to uh, shame these people because frugality 
was a moral uh, positive for the Romans. And so uh, people who were living it with such excess might not have been seen in the best light by the public, especially if there was a food shortage or something like that. It doesn't um, make you look very good. Um, and so the, uh, so yeah, the rich uh, lived a very lavish lifestyle um, and had a lot of, uh, and showed it in their food. Um, whereas poor people ate much simpler food. Golly, you guys are so good about not having your phone on. And I'm just the worst. Our house is in flux right now. We're trying to close on our house on Friday, and they just found a problem today. It's like, mm. anyway, uh, so I am not very popular, but apparently everyone calls me during class. Anyway, um, poor people, they would eat things like bread, cheese, vegetables, um, pretty basic. Um, but a lot of times, you know, things that they were growing themselves, uh, most farmers or most villages were self-sufficient. And so people were, you know, <laughs> If you're into like local, non-GMO, organic, you know, super awesome and local food, <laughs> being a Roman peasant would be pretty good. Now, did you have enough of it all the time? Not necessarily. Um, so there's that. Uh, but people ate pretty simple diets. Uh, you know, we even have like um, poems about food from commoners and things like that. And they almost describe like basically little pizza type things that they're eating. It's pretty cool. Um, Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, like I said, uh, we know a lot about these foods from cookbooks and historical accounts. One of my favorite foods that the ancient Romans would eat was called garum, G-A-U-R-M. Garum is uh, fish goo, which is basically uh, fish that would be chopped to bits and put into a trough with a whole bunch of salt and let sit in the sun for like three months, and it would ferment and get uh, wonderfully uh, fishy and salty, and uh, they put it on everything. Um, but it had protein and all kinds of vitamins and minerals and some good saltiness, but it was a condiment kind of like, I guess you'd say like ketchup, right? We put ketchup on anything or ranch, put ranch on anything. Um, same with garum. Uh, they still sell it. You can actually find it, uh, supposedly. Uh, I haven't looked too much, but I do have friends who have eaten, eaten it and like it. Some Someday, if I think ahead, I'll try and find some and bring it in. We can eat it on crackers, and we can decide for ourselves. Keep promising you food, but I'm not very good at uh, following through on food promises. Okay, um, there were two primary modes of, of agriculture. Uh, there's the small and the large holdings. Small holdings are, you know, small tenant uh, farmers or small farmsteads. You know, where perhaps uh, a Roman soldier or other person would have bought or was given a uh, tract of land for them to live on, to farm, um, and to you know, sell their excess. Uh, then there were large holdings. These were owned usually by patricians or senators or wealthy people. And sometimes they would go and live on the farm, but often they lived in Rome or in a city. And they would have a manager running the farm. And they would go out to these palatial estates for summer holidays or whatever. Um, but the agriculture there was done not by individuals who owned the land, but either by tenant farmers or um, by slaves in some instances, or in a number of instances. Uh, a lot of times these were more like agricultural factories where they would make wine or um, olive oil or some other finished product. 
Of course, the profit would all go to the owner, who again might not be might be an absentee landlord. And uh, the proportion of small to large holdings shifted over time. Um, after sometimes when too few people would own too much land, there would be riots. Um, sometimes the large landowners would get come into trouble with the law or the state, and they would be dispossessed of their land. And then um, often soldiers, as a reward for their service, would be given land. And that would often come from uh, land that had formerly owned, been owned by a, a wealthy landowner that had been split up and given to soldiers, because you want to keep your soldiers happy, because uh, the army is a very powerful force uh, then as now. Um, right, uh, and eventually, the large land holdings turn into small fortresses with attached villages, um, and you can see how this grades into the castle system, the feudal system of the Middle Ages, where what were once you know, rich Roman landowners living in the city became isolated castles where these rich landowners uh, held sway over their little plot of land, uh, and they had fiefs or serfs um, that were basically indentured servants or eh, bound to the land through law and custom, right? And so this grades right into the Middle Ages. Fun times. All right, let's talk about society. I've kind of been um, skirting around this issue as it is. Uh, society was divided, uh, as were basically all societies through history. Mm, in the last 10,000 years, excuse me. Um, and uh, the highest class of individuals, once they got rid of the monarchy in Rome, were the patricians. The patricians um, were the top 3% or so of the society. Um, they were thought to be descendants of the original founding council of Rome. So these are families that if they weren't literally descended from people who founded Rome, they're families that have been around in Rome for quite a long time. Um, this was originally the, the group of people from, uh, from which senators and emperors and council, uh, consuls and others were, were drawn. Um, over time, they opened up the Senate and they allowed uh, people's pledges and uh, people's representatives to be elected uh, to serve. But uh, there was still kind of like the House of Lords in England versus the House of Commons. Um, they would still have quite a lot of very rich um, patricians in it. They were endogamous. Endogamous is a fun word from cultural anthropology. Endo meaning into, gamus uh, having to do with marriage. Uh, so endogamous meaning uh, they were insular in marriage. They only married within their group. So a patrician would only marry another patrician. Uh, they could not marry anyone of, a, of another group. As a reward, reward, uh, as part of being a patrician, one often owned land that was given to them or subsidized by the state. Good thing the state doesn't uh, subsidize or help people who are already really wealthy in our society. Good thing we got rid of that with the Romans. <laughs> um, 
And then we have the plebs, um, or the plebs for short, plebeians. It's the complete name, plebeians or the plebs. Um, it's about 85% of society, so the vast majority. Not quite the 99% because there were people below the plebs. Um, these are commoners, really. Um, I guess you refer to them as the middle class. They did, um, a lot of them did farming, although um, a lot of slaves also farmed, um, but not for themselves. Uh, but uh, plebs were also tradespeople. If you were an artisan or you had a business and you made something or did something, you were probably uh, a pleb. Uh, patricians didn't really have jobs. They had wealth that generated more wealth for them by owning things that made money. Uh, but they didn't really do much actual work themselves. Um, whereas plebs, uh, even rich plebs, usually did it because or were rich because they had a business. Um, you know, some uh, business people became quite rich from trading um, and selling things. Uh, others grew rich through. Oh, that was the main one usually with business. Um, uh, and a pleb could become a, by the later times in Roman history, uh, plebs could become very important people in society. They could take on senatorial positions. But usually, uh, the only plebs that were able to do that were rich ones. Uh, poor plebs weren't getting elected to the Senate. What else? Um, mm -hmm. The plebs were the main component of the army, um, and sometimes the army would go on strike. Again, um, a lot of these would have to do with they had been promised land or pay after a certain war, and then it hadn't been given. So then the army goes on strike. And for Rome, remember, they want to live under that Pax Romana. They want to keep the area inside their borders and their borders secure and safe. But if your army goes on strike, that can endanger the whole shebang. So. Um, when the army went on strike, it was a big deal. It'd be like all border security in the United States, the army, and the police all going on strike at once for us, right? That would be, uh, I guess that would be the purge, right? Isn't there a documentary about that that came out last year? Um, so um, by our standards, uh, women didn't have tons of rights, but by ancient standards, women had quite a lot of rights in Roman society, uh, much better than uh, Greek society or um, really many others. While um, there weren't women elected to the Senate, no. Um, they had a lot of other rights, um, and they were just like the men, and maybe even more so than the men, constantly busy. Uh, plebeian uh, women were basically uh, in charge of the domestic sphere. So running the household, raising the children, you know, the kind of traditional gender role that we might expect. Very busy, um, but they had a lot of rights. Um, could go out in public. They could do a lot of things that weren't necessarily available to women in other societies. Um, assisted in agriculture when necessary. Um, doo -doo -doo. Slaves, there was definitely slavery. Um, people sold people into bondage. Um, people sold themselves into bondage. People were captured in war and became slaves. Uh, most slaves or many slaves were freed once their master died, especially slaves that um, 
were in close contact, like a, 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 a body servant, so somebody who helps dress or take care of uh, a master personally, or works in the house and is very well known to them, those slaves are more, more likely to be freed if they have a personal connection with their master, whereas somebody who is a slave on a plantation, uh, basically what the large land holdings were, were not dissimilar to a plantation in the American context, um, where they would have slaves that probably wouldn't be freed upon the owner's death. Um, the nice thing though, well nice thing, <laughs> as nice as anything can be about slavery, when one was uh, bought freedom or was granted freedom, uh, they were given full citizen rights. Rome was uh, more progressive uh, than uh, other societies when people were granted uh, freedom. Uh, and so, the, yeah, the slaves were given free rights. They couldn't join the army, and I don't think they could become senators, but they were otherwise completely free and Roman citizens. Uh, interestingly, Rome was extremely multicultural, and while there obviously were prejudices and stereotypes and things that people would, like racial theory was pretty popular back then, as it is, continues to be. Um, they granted citizenship to people of many different um, cultures and background and ethnic backgrounds. About 12% of the population was slaves at any one time. Okay, natural disasters and catastrophes. Um, when compared to other ancient societies, Rome was, had a pretty good one. Um, they had, now they had a pretty large empire, and so they had a lot of different environments, and there were a lot of different catastrophes that could befall people in different parts of the Roman Empire. But the heartland itself was a pretty benign, really bucolic, sort of nice place to live. Sure, there were storms. But they weren't like, you know, you, they weren't as dependent on rivers like uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia. Um, they didn't have hurricanes like the Maya, right? They didn't have these major, uh, these major environmental uh, dangers. And they also had good climatological timing. They lived during the Roman Warm Period. Uh, obviously, that wasn't something they planned for, but it certainly didn't hurt them. Um, what they did have were things like storms, earthquakes, and floods. There was a period during which uh, one did not venture out on the Mediterranean because of storms. It can be stormy, and if you're in a ship like this, you don't want to be caught in a major storm. And there were some volcanic activities and earthquakes. They were fairly minor, but of course I'm forgetting Pompeii, the town... I think it's, oh, what is it, 70 kilometers or 70 miles southwest, southeast of uh, Rome that had, uh, <laughs> that was covered by a volcano. Obviously, uh, they probably would have disagreed with me saying that it was a nice environment. Um, and this is a picture of, a satellite picture of Thera, where if you look in here, this is a crater from a volcano that erupted extremely uh, energetically and probably wiped out the Minoan civilization on Crete and uh, did damage even all the way to Egypt. 
Rome wasn't around at the time, but there are certainly uh, catastrophe, natural catastrophes that could um, strike. <laughs> it's really funny, the story. So there was a tidal wave after Ptera went off. And uh, in Egypt, they record where all of a sudden the ocean receded, or the Mediterranean receded, and all these fish were like lying on the beach, like flapping, right? Because the water went out so fast. So everybody's running out on the beach, just sprinting out there with baskets, like getting as many fish as they can. And then you can just like picture them, like hearing like a rushing noise and looking up and seeing the tidal wave coming back at them. And thousands and thousands of people died because they were out collecting fish when, yeah. So there are certainly some disasters, um, but you know, Generally speaking, it was okay. They did um, create some of their own problems, of course. Um, death, disease, famine, certainly uh, very popular. Um, let's see, they used wood frame construction. So their whole city was built out of wood, which isn't very good when things catch on fire. Your whole city then burns down. So uh, Rome burned down at least a couple of times. Uh, not to mention, you know, isolated fires, and it, over time it became harder and harder to find wood to repair everything. There was certainly some stone construction, but there was enough wood um, and wood-dependent uh, construction that fires were uh, a real and present and common danger. Uh, we have things like war uh, that were pretty common both at home and abroad. There was uh, the equivalent of what we would call domestic terrorism, of people who were subjugated who didn't want to be subjugated. Um, there were uh, incursions by external foes, uh, sometimes more successful than others. So, you know, the usual war types of things that are true of, of a lot of ancient societies. But in this case, unlike, say, the ancient Maya, who when they had an army, or excuse me, they never had an army when they were at war, they would send out elite warriors to fight other elite warriors. In Rome, they had a massive army, uh, as did other societies in the European tradition and throughout the Middle East. And so they would field these huge armies. So it would be a massive slaughter when these armies met, which was kind of um, a bummer. I really like the, uh, the Maya way, because then way fewer people die. That's much better. Um, and you're less likely, if you're a normal commoner, uh, you're less likely to be caught up directly in, uh, in warfare. And then we have disease. So this is a Roman bath. And bath, uh, baths were like a really common thing in Rome. People would go, they'd relax, they'd spend the afternoon. Like, you know, you'd work in the morning, you'd go home and have lunch, and then you'd spend the afternoon at the bath. It was kind of like the gym slash coffee sl shop slash beach slash, I don't know, where else do you? folks hang out. Um, and it's all in one with these big heated bath rooms where you would go and you would work out in the gym part and then you'd go in like the hot part and then you'd go in the cold part and there'd be saunas and it was this whole thing and you were with your friends all day afternoon like that's where you'd go to hang out in the afternoon it was this big fun thing. But um, water uh, and the baths they, they weren't chlorinated so you're swimming in there with people who have all kinds of you know weird old timey diseases like typhus and things like that. So, um, one Roman historian, you might, if you read the footnotes, you know this. Uh, 
<laughs> his suggestion, if you had uh, the runs, was to go and wash out your backside in the baths, because that would uh, help you get over the runs. Ah! <laughs> so, <laughs> hooray <laughs> um, for everyone else in the bath. I'm sure I was super excited about that, yeah. Is it like a community bath? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like each neighborhood would have one sort of thing. Yeah, and and you know uh, there are social differences and things, of course, fancier ones and less fancy ones. Um, so yeah, petri dish. It's just a big giant petri dish that everyone hung out in in the afternoons. Surprising that so many lived. Um, waste was dumped right in the streets. They had sewers, but you know a lot of people just dumped their waste in the streets. So hooray! Um, this is one of the reasons that. Cities are called uh, demographic sinks. Demographic sinks, S-I-N-K-S. Um, demographic sinks basically are places where the population cannot sustain itself. So a city, before the Industrial Revolution, cities were demographic sinks, and they could not support themselves through birth rate alone. They had to have people moving into them to even have a stable population, let alone to grow. London, same thing. Uh, basically, any large city before the Industrial Revolution had to have people coming in from the countryside to grow. It was the only way they could grow or even survive. Same thing here. If you're thinking about all these people living so close together with all of this disease and really crappy, forgive the pun, uh, sanitation systems, uh, it's no, no surprise that they weren't able to uh, live, <laughs> they weren't able to sustain themselves through their birth rate. It's, uh, we're unusual. This is the first time in human history that we've been able to do that. Hooray, modern medicine or whatever. All right, demographic sinks. Um, they had things like smallpox uh, in the fall. They'd have malaria when it was wet. Um, and then there were other human-caused uh, problems like, you know, people worked in tanneries with all kinds of caustic chemicals, or there was a lot of on-the-job injury because there was no OSHA, right? So uh, you'd build however you wanted to build, and if it collapsed, then you know not to do it that way next time. All right, let's move on to trade, see if we get through that. So the Mediterranean has been a kind of a bastion of trade um, well, well before the Romans, right? Um, we know about the Phoenicians. We know about the um, other groups in the Middle East. We'll learn soon about um, the Egyptians who had to import a lot of things. Um, but the Greeks and the Phoenicians especially had a really robust pan-Mediterranean um, pan, um, trade network. And so the Romans were really just kind of plugged into this existing network that was originally centered farther to the east, in the Middle East. Um, and it's only during the Roman period that it becomes more centralized in the Mediterranean. Excuse me. Um. <laughs> they used both road. Um, their plugging into this network was both over land and over the ocean, but you can see why the Mediterranean was such a great, it's like the highway, right? You can go anywhere you want um, on a boat, and it's pretty easy um, because 
you don't have to build a road over a mountain pass, you can just sail around. Um, Rose, Rome really became a middleman in pan uh, Mediterranean trade, right? As you can see, they're centrally located. Carthage was the previous kind of central hub. Rome took over once the Punic Wars were fought um, in the 300s BCE. Um, or 3rd century BCE. Uh, within the empire, again, remember the Pax Romana. Um, trade was facilitated by Roman roads and Roman protection of people in that area. Um, it was a free trade zone um, that made uh, things a lot less ha of a hassle to travel uh, because you didn't have to A, worry about bandits, or B, uh, worry about the roads. They were in good shape. Okay. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. Rome was a hub both of finished goods, but also raw materials. A lot of raw materials would come into Rome, and then they'd get made into uh, final products, and then shipped out at a premium. Um, eventually, all the provinces started to make their own uh, items, and realized that, hey, up here in Gaul, we make pretty good wine. Why would we have to send out for Roman wine anymore, or Greek wine? That makes no sense. We make better wine here anyway. Um, so that was the case in all kinds of different provinces where they realized that they could do these things for themselves better than having to buy them expensively from Rome, which is bad news for Rome. Mm. After about 400 in the Common Era, uh, the new power center was at Byzantium uh, rather than Rome, and Rome fell into... I mean, Rome's always been... An, a really uh, important central city for Europe in general. But as far as the Roman Empire and trading continue, uh, were concerned, Byzantium really took over around 400 BCE. Have we talked about fiat currency? I don't think we've talked about fiat currency. Awesome. OK, fiat currency is uh, FIAT has nothing to do with the car. Uh, fiat currency is. Currency that doesn't have an intrinsic value. Now, as shiny and pretty as gold is, it has no intrinsic value. Paper money has no intrinsic value, right? Other than the, the paper it's printed on. See, I put my big bills on the outside. Um, right? There's no, this isn't worth, like I can go buy a candy bar. The candy bar has more functional use than the paper. I don't know what I'm going to do with this paper, right? There's no actual use for it. The only use is that we as a society have agreed that it actually has value. That's it. Now most of us do a lot of online, online banking or we buy things with a credit card or a debit card. Even more abstraction, right? You don't, you're not actually exchanging anything. I walk into a grocery store, I fill up my cart with a whole bunch of awesome food, I walk up to somebody and show them a plastic card, and then I walk out with all this food and nothing has actually changed hands. They've moved some digits from my bank account to their bank account, but it doesn't, like, it doesn't touch me in any way, shape, or form, because I get paid from the school digitally. Like, I never see, like, we're, there's nothing there. Shh, freaks people out. Uh, so fiat currency is currency that has only social value, and often throughout history we've used things like, uh, rare metals, because if we use things like, let's say we had a society that traded using like leaves, 
leaves from a birch tree, that would be pretty stupid because anyone could just go out and be like, ooh, collect a whole bunch of birch leaves and give them to somebody, right? Like that would be stupid. The best, and same thing with like uh, cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin, they have a specific um, mechanism by which the creation of new Bitcoins is regulated. So it can't be, can't just grow infinitely. Same thing with um, unusual metals or materials. Uh, since they are rare, they are going to limit the uh, number of things or the number of fiat currency in circulation. And so you're not going to have runaway inflation if it was something that, was, that grew on trees. Although the Maya did use uh, coconut, or excuse me, coconut, that'd be ridiculous, cocoa beans as a type of currency. And now to be fair, cocoa beans do have a value for themselves. You can buy a sack of them for a set amount. However, uh, people would still use them as kind of a easy way to make change or to trade in the Maya area. And we even know of people passing um, the husks of cocoa beans filled with sand as, as uh, counterfeits, which is pretty awesome. But um, the Romans made um, all kinds of coins um, that often featured the uh, emperor of the moment. Uh, gold was a big one, uh, silver also, but as um, all modern economies do, uh, the coins became debased. They would put uh, non-gold or non-silver metal in the middle, uh, or they would make an alloy that only had some gold or some silver to stretch their metal a little further. Um, and pretty common, and it would cause inflation because there would be more being put out than um, the economy could handle. <laughs> the neat thing for archaeologists is people like to save coins. Not only are they intrinsically valuable, but they're made of a... In, intrinsically valuable. They're not intrinsically valuable. They're socially valuable, so people hold on to them, number one. Number two, they're made out of a metal that generally tends to be considered valuable by people for some reason. Um, when the apocalypse hits, try and eat your piles of cash that you're hoarding under your basement. What am I talking about? You're all students. You don't have piles of cash. Neither do I. <laughs> so, yay. I don't know who I'm talking to here. Anyway, um, but people hang on to these things. And so, or they get lost and they fall. They're small enough that they fall into the garbage enough that archaeologists can see them. And the really neat thing is, just because someone isn't under the direct mm, power or the direct uh, zone of the Pax Romana, they would still be trading with the Romans. And so we see uh, in Germany or other peripheral um, societies that aren't directly related to Rome, we see their coins popping up, which is great, because then we know at least they're interacting economically, even if they are not socially uh, uh, controlled by Rome, which is fun. Oh, I love fiat currency. We even find their um, coins as far away as India and China, so we know that people are um, trading with them. The neat thing about coins and fiat currency in general is that it allows for the collection of taxes. If we look at Mesopotamia and the Maya, the way they did taxes was, I think I've mentioned this before, corvée labor. C-O-R-V-E-E. -E. Mm -hmm. It's an accent. Uh, corvée labor basically says, instead of paying me 20% of your income, 
you are going to give me 20% of your time. Usually in the non-agricultural season, you're just sitting in your house hanging out with your family anyway, so why don't you do something useful and come build me a road, right? And your family, each family has to provide one individual per year for a couple of months to do social projects because they didn't necessarily have fiat currency. Uh, they could have done it a different way, but that seems to be pretty common throughout history. However, in Rome, people would actually just collect straight up monetary taxes. And then instead of requiring you, know, you, Mr. Farmer, to come in for two months of the year and build our beautiful new roads, we'll just take your money and then we'll hire workers and they will build all the roads. Um, that's what a lot of people did when they moved into Rome or other Roman cities and they were dispossessed of their land or they lost their land as farmers or they gave up their land or sold it and moved to the cities, a lot of them did public works um, as laborers and they were paid with money. So you had some people who were doing 100% of their labor in public works instead of having everybody do 20% of their labor in public works. So it's just a different way to skin the same cat. And they were all able to amass a large treasury of work. Um, for example, if you wanted to do a big project as a Roman emperor, if you were on the corvée labor system, you can't really save that up, right? You can't be like, all right, everybody, you're not, I'm not going to tax you this year, so you don't have to work the two months for me this year, but next year you have to work for me for four months. Well, that doesn't really work because everyone has to farm most of the year, so they're not going to be able to just leave their farms. You'd cut yourself out from under yourself. However, with taxes, all you'd have to do is collect the taxes one year and not spend them, collect them the next year, and then you have twice as much to spend, for example. It's a pretty simplified example, but you have a lot more flexibility with fiat currency, and so their economy was a lot more complex and exciting. I guess, exciting if you like complex economies. Um, one of the things that they built were roads. Um, this is the Via Appia. Via Appia is the Appian Way. Uh, it is a Roman road that still exists in a lot of portions. Um, actually, there are a fair number of Roman roads that exist, and they are usually made out of a bed of gravel, covered by a bed of sand, covered by flagstones, hemmed in by, um, um, hemmed in by these edgers. And the cool thing is they had like mileposts, and they all led to Rome, right? You, all roads lead to Rome. I'm sure you've heard something like that before. Mileposts are, so you know how the mile is such like an awkward uh, distance? If you, if you have a really regular pace and you walk and count one, two, three, if you do that a thousand times, you get close to a mile, or a Roman mile, because that's a thousand, mile, like 1,000, like M. Mille is, is thousands, so that's what mile is from. It's a thousand steps. So if you're bored because you're walking along this road because you don't have an iPod at this time and you want to count your steps, you can basically do your own mileage by counting how many times you step. Fun, fun time. Okay. Um, this was a toll-free road network, so you didn't have to pay tolls to use it. Uh, it facilitated commerce and travel, but it also allowed the military to move around really fast. And, like I said last time, there was a postal service that also used these roads. <laughs> Traveling by, oh, here's uh, some of the 
Roman uh, roads of the Roman heartland. There were others that went all over, uh, but these were particularly nice ones all around Rome. Uh, when we get to the uh, Inca, the Inca also had a road system that would easily rival the Roman road system. Um, and they had a much more difficult terrain to deal with. Moving overland was slow and expensive, though. For example, if you had a sack of grain and you wanted to move it from one place to another, and you had two options between uh, you could use a cart with an ox or something, or you could use a boat uh, by sending it by cart because it was so slow and you needed an ox and you needed a driver and you needed a cart and whatever, it would raise the cost of that item 50%. If, however, you put that sack, same sack of grain in a boat and sent it the same distance, it would, uh, if 100 miles just for standardization, you know, it would raise it 50%. Um, if you, it would only raise it 2% by boat because boat is way easier. You have a boat and there's almost no work and you can put a lot more weight in it. And yeah, so sending things by boat was 25% cheaper. So uh, certainly that was preferred but not always possible. They had uh, donkeys, camels, mules, horses, and even oxen pulling carts. Uh, but I will note that in cities, because it's kind of awkward, you know, you think it's awkward driving like a moving truck in a city. I, for some reason in college, my friends always asked me to drive like the U-Haul, and this was in Boston. If you've ever been to Boston, the streets are all like janky. So I always had to drive. Oh. Yeah, all the streets were not, they were made for people walking. And even then, it was hard to get carts and move carts around, in, even in major cities. So in towns, most of the stuff was moved around by guys pushing like wheelbarrows, essentially, carts. So, yeah, still not super uh, efficient, right? Uh, still a lot of, I mean, it's all manual, so. Okay, we're going to stop there. We will pick up on Monday talking about sea travel. Hooray! Uh, did I say on Monday? I said, I meant on Wednesday. We'll pick, okay, we'll pick up today's Monday. Hello, good morning. Uh, we'll pick up on Wednesday with sea travel. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.